So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, there you go. (laughs) Doesn't feel like church without that, does it? Uh, As you're turning there, I want to thank those who came out yesterday to help with the work day. Uh, Got a lot of really, really, really good work done, a lot of hard work done, uh, a lot of pulling of weeds, a lot of bending over at the waist. And so if you see somebody this morning that's kind of walking around like this, either their football team didn't win yesterday or they were here working. Or both, unfortunately. (laughs) So last week we were in Genesis chapter 41. Man, thank you, Tyler, so much for bringing such a great word while uh, Susan and I had had an opportunity to get away for a few days. Um, Myself and a couple of the other elders went up to a church planting conference meeting with um, uh, several church planters and church planting churches from all over the country uh, through our uh, cooperation in the, in the Pillar Network. And so just a great time. And at the end of the week and the weekend, Susan and I had an opportunity to get away, just the two of us. It was glorious. And so thank you so much, Tyler, for filling in uh, and covering Chapter 41. Man, what a great, incredible reminder of the absolute sovereignty of God. As we saw, so many pieces begin to fall together in chapter 41, he has providentially, uh, you think back to the story of Joseph as it began in chapter 37, uh, God providentially led Jacob to show favoritism to Joseph. As a result of that, Joseph's brothers were jealous of him so much so that they sold him They first threw him in a pit, and then they sold him to these slave traders who were on their way down to Egypt. But that, too, was on purpose because these Ishmaelites, in turn, sold him to Potiphar. And that was on purpose as well because upon being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, Joseph then is thrown into prison, but not just any prison. The very same prison that just a few years later, Pharaoh himself will throw his chief cupbearer and chief baker. And while they're there in prison with Joseph providentially attending to them, God gives them a dream. And he providentially gave Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. And so now they're together. That's not coincidence. That's by God's design. And so Joseph is able to interpret their dreams. And and he providentially causes that interpretation to be exactly what happens to both of them. And, And through that, not immediately, but in God's perfect timing, a couple years later, when Pharaoh has a dream, he needs somebody to interpret it. Nobody in his court can interpret it. Then, and only then, does the cupbearer remember, hey, there's this Hebrew in jail that interpreted a dream for me. Maybe he can interpret yours. And so we see how that story came together in chapter 41 as as Pharaoh summons Joseph to him and he interprets Pharaoh's dreams that, that there will be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And that if Pharaoh would take certain measures now to take advantage of those seven years, namely to to harvest the crops and to store the crops and store the grain, then, then Egypt would make it through that famine quite nicely. Not only by feeding their own citizens, but by also selling that grain to the surrounding nations and peoples. And so Pharaoh puts puts Joseph in charge of enacting that plan and, and, and puts him in charge of all of his kingdom. And, and, and this little Joseph who came from Canaan when he was 17 years old, he, he becomes second in power in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. There's two reminders I want to give to you at the outset, two kind of summary points from the story of Joseph up to this point that, that we're going to return to after the end of chapter 42. The first is that I think we just have to sit back and marvel at the sovereignty of God in all of this. 
Just to sit back and see God knew what he was doing all along. We don't often have the, the, the privilege of seeing that come together in this life. But, but in God's providence in this story, we do. We get, to, we get to see he knew what he was doing at every point. And at every juncture, it was by design. Even the pit, even the bondage by the Ishmaelites, even slavery in Potiphar's house, even the jail in Egypt. God knew exactly what he was doing, and he was fulfilling his purpose and his plan. We just have to sit back and marvel at the sovereignty of God in all of that. Joseph had been given a dream. Remember that dream back in chapter 37? He had been given a dream that his brothers would one day bow down to him. His brothers and his mother and his father, that they would, they would come and bow down before him. He'd be elevated to some position of authority, but he had absolutely no clue how that would happen. And, and on, although the, the text never gives us any indication that he ever doubted that promise, you, you, you've got to imagine that he probably battled with doubt there. Is, is this really part of the plan? The pit? Slavery? Bondage to Ishmaelites? Prison time? Is that really? How does that connect to fulfillment of this promise that you have given to me? But it was. We just have to sit back and marvel at the sovereignty of God in all of that. And we're not done learning about God's sovereignty. We're going to see it today, and we're going to continue to see it through the story of Joseph as we make our way all the way through the end of the book of Genesis. As we said before, the grand theme, the, the primary takeaway of the narrative of the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis from chapter 37 to chapter 50 is the sovereignty of God. That he is in control, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Because we're bound by time and space and limited knowledge. But he's in control. And, and he's working out his plan. And, and friend, if, if in God's divine wisdom, he's going to devote 14 chapters explaining something like this, then perhaps this is important for us to try to comprehend. Because, man, great song, great song. It is sweet comfort to know that whatever we're going through in life, God is in control, and he's working things out for our good and his glory. It is absolutely of no comfort to me to think of God as someone that, that the circumstances of life and the hard times of life and the injustice of life takes him by surprise. But to know that he is in control, church, that is a biblical doctrine that will bring sweet comfort when those times come in your life. And so don't let these 14 chapters just kind of drag out, but, but dive into them, press into them so that that truth would be pressed into your heart and the hearts of your children and your family so that that will reap fruit for the Lord when those times come in your life. We just have to sit back and marvel at that. The life of Joseph mirrors our own in one very important way, and that is that we too experience life situations and circumstances that just don't seem to match up with what we think our life should be about. And, and it just seems, right? It just, it just seems that God doesn't seem to be interested in working things out the way we expect them to. And that's the point. That is the point. I'm sure Joseph had a plan for his life. And I'm sure it didn't include a pit or bondage to Ishmaelites or slavery or jail time. But in God's sovereignty, those places and those circumstances were part of his providential plan in order to bring about his plan and his purpose in and through his life. And so ultimately, God had to see, uh, Joseph had to see that God was at work. And he, he had to trust him, even in his suffering, even in the injustice, that, that, that God was working, he was controlling, he was guiding, he, he, was, he was leading, he was directing to accomplish his perfect plan. And, and God wants us to come to grips with that very same thing, that God is at work in your life, even in the hard times, even in the suffering, even in the injustice, 
guiding, controlling, leading, manipulating even the elements of time and space in order to bring about his perfect plan, which is for your good as a follower of Christ and his glory. That's the first and most important point of this story of Joseph to this point. And the second is this. The second is that he's not done yet. He's not done yet. The story of Joseph rising to power in Egypt, as we saw in chapter 41, is not the end. It is a means to an end. God's not done with Joseph and his family, not even close. And so please, please, please don't look at chapter 41 in a vacuum and, and, and conclude, as long as I just hang on, God's going to bless me. God's going to finally pull me out of this pit that I'm in, and he's going to bless me and give me success in life, just like he did with Joseph. Tyler made this point last week beautifully. God is about his plans and purposes, not ours. Because our plans and purposes are all about our success in this life. But God's plans and purposes are all about his glory for eternity. And that's what he's doing. And so as we look even at, at Joseph's life and, and see how everything worked out for him, we need to understand that is not an end for Joseph. That is a means to an end. And what we'll see in chapter 42 is we'll see that means being connected to the end. So the shedding of chapter 42, 41 was all, took place all in Egypt. It was, in fact, it was the third chapter in a row where all of the action of the narrative took place with Joseph in Egypt. And now with chapter 42, the setting is going to change. Up to this point, for the last three chapters, we haven't heard anything about the land of Canaan. We hadn't heard anything about Joseph's family back in Canaan. But now that changes. Now we're going to hear the, the, the family of Joseph, namely his brothers and his father, are going to be reintroduced into the story. And the setting itself will vacillate between Egypt and the land of Canaan itself. We got a hint of that from the very last verse of chapter 41. Look at that, verse 57. It said, Moreover... All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. So if this famine that Joseph has providentially prepared Egypt to survive, if this famine is spread over all the earth and all the earth now is coming to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain and then, then we wonder, well then has, has this famine also spread to Canaan? What's happening back there? And, and, and will this, could this be the means through which we see the brothers and Joseph come back? Chapter 42. Chapter 42 is divided into three sections. And I want to I look at each of these sections individually instead of reading through the whole chapter. Um, the, the sections of chapter 42 follow the journey of the brothers, first in Canaan and then in Egypt and then returning back to Canaan and, and their father Jacob. And so the first section is verses 1 through 5, where we see Joseph's brothers and their father Jacob back in Canaan. So follow along in your copy of the scriptures as we read the first five verses of chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among, among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So this is kind of like, meanwhile, back at the ranch. What was happening back at Canaan? And so now the narrative shifts back to Joseph's brothers and Joseph's father, Jacob, back in the land of Canaan, and they are experiencing the effects of a famine in the land. Life is getting hard there. In fact, life is getting dangerous. Food is becoming scarce. Perhaps starvation is beginning to set in. Perhaps people have already begun to die of, salvation, of starvation. So Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to buy grain so that they would survive the famine, but he doesn't send them all. He keeps Benjamin back, the youngest. And again, we see in the life of Jacob this, this display of favoritism in his family. A, a, a display that didn't work out well with his marriages. It didn't work out with Joseph. Things did not turn out well for Joseph because of the favoritism that Jacob showed to him. And yet, here we see Jacob doing it again. 
showing favoritism to Benjamin, the only full brother of Joseph, uh, the youngest son of his favorite wife, Rachel. And so we see that again. Now, they're all heading back to the ten sons, the ten brothers of Joseph are heading back to Egypt to buy grain, and we know what awaits them in Egypt, right? Or, or rather, we know who awaits them in Egypt, but they don't. They, they don't they're clueless about jo- uh, Joseph. They have no idea about Joseph. To them, Joseph is dead. They, they figure that he's died somewhere or he's in, in slavery somewhere. To them, he's dead. To them, he's gone forever. And so we know what awaits them in Egypt, but they don't. So verses 1 through 5 set the stage for the reunion of Joseph with his brothers. And as, as, as is the case a lot of times with family reunions, it doesn't go very smoothly when they get there. Now before we move on, I want, I want you to see that the stage is also set for us to see that God is working on multiple planes here, multiple levels. And I, and I want to articulate them now and, 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 and then we'll see them at the end. First of all, we see here, this is a story about, uh, among many other things, the story about personal reconciliation. There is conflict, obviously, between Joseph and his brothers. There is hurt. There is pain. There is deep relational scars between them in this family. And, and so uh, God is working on a personal level here to bring about reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. But he's also working on a family level because we remember Joseph's dreams. We remember that Joseph's dreams is that his entire family would come and bow down to him and that he would be elevated in authority above them. And God is working that out. We begin to see that in this chapter. But God is not just working on a personal level and a family level. He's also working on a national level. Because we also remember the promise to Abraham. And the promise to Abraham is that, Abraham, I am going to make you into a great nation. And part of what we see in this chapter is God beginning to take more steps in that and work that plan out. But beyond even that, God is also working on what I call a redemptive historical level. Because God's promise to Abraham is not just to make a great nation. That was a means to another end. And that was that that nation would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Because it is through that nation that he was bringing his son, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. God has a plan to redeem sinners back to himself, and we see him working not just on a personal level, on a family level, on a national level, but on a redemptive historical level to cause that to come to fruition. And what I want us to see here at the outset is that God's means at this stage in the story for moving his plans forward on each of these levels, his means of doing so is through the use of a famine. God's using a famine. Now, I'll go out on a limb there and say that probably none of us in this room have ever experienced a famine. Maybe we've read about them. Maybe we've seen documentaries about them. But we've never really experienced a famine. At the outset of the pandemic that we're in, in the early days, uh, we had things that were missing from the grocery store shelves, right? We had toilet paper was, was a shortage, and, and we had our favorite brands were in short supply. But in a real famine, you run out of food, like there's no more food. Food sources dry up, and there is none, and people starve, and they die. And what we need to understand here is that there were no famines before the fall. Adam and Eve had plenty to eat in the garden. There were no famines before sin entered the world. And so famine itself is a result of the fall, just like tornadoes and hurricanes and wildfires and every other natural disaster that we see in the world today. It's a result of the fall. And yet, here is God using a famine, bringing a famine to all the earth, it says, and he's using this famine in order to reconcile his estranged brothers to himself, to, to Joseph. He's using this famine to bring fulfillment of Joseph's dream. He's using a famine to begin the work of building a great nation, which apparently he's going to do down in Egypt. And he's using this famine, ultimately, he's bringing it about. Ultimately, because he's going to bring his son into the world 
and send him to a cross in order to crush the head of the serpent and defeat sin and death forever. And so again, we, we see that God will sometimes use severe means to accomplish his sovereign plan in our lives as well. It's probably not going to be a famine, but it might be cancer, or it might be a job loss, or it might be a pandemic, or it might be a national political leader that you believe is evil or unjust. It may be any number of possible sources of suffering or injustice, but whatever it is, it is a means through which God is bringing about his perfect and sovereign plan. And so our part is to trust him. Trust him. And then keep trusting him and keep obeying him in that. Even in the midst of his, what we might call severe mercies. And so the brothers head to Egypt to buy grain minus Benjamin. Let's read now the second section. This is the largest section by far, verses 6 through 25. In the first section, we see Joseph's brothers in Canaan. In the second section, the second section we now see Joseph's brothers and Joseph himself in Egypt. So verses 6 through 25. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. But they said to him, no, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, Nope, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall, go, you shall not go from this place until your young, youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men... Let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grains and to report every man's money in his sack, return every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. So the brothers come to Joseph in Egypt, and what do they do? They immediately fall down and they bow to the ground with their faces to the ground before him. And, and immediately we're reminded of Joseph's dreams, right? We're reminded of his dreams in chapter 37, whereby God said to him, your brothers are going to one day bow before you. We're reminded of that, but we see that this dream, though it's coming to partial fulfillment, it's only partial because not all of the brothers are here. Benjamin's still back in Canaan. So next we're told that the brothers don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. Apparently that's important for, to Moses for us to know that because he repeats that phrase twice. 
that they don't recognize him, but Joseph recognizes them. He recognizes his brothers. Now imagine, church, imagine what must have been going through Joseph's mind when he recognizes his brothers bowing down before him. Imagine what must have been going through his mind and his heart when he saw that scene. It had been 20 years, 13 years between Potiphar's house and and prison, and at least seven years in Pharaoh's court. 20 years ago, they had betrayed him and thrown him in a pit and then sold him to slave traders. And the last time that Joseph had spoken back in chapter 41 was when his first son Manasseh had been born. And when Manasseh was born, Joseph said this, verse 51 of chapter 41, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. God has made me forget all my father's house, all my brothers, all my family. At the birth of his first son, it's as if that meant to Joseph, all that that happened to me is in the past. That pain, that hurt, those scars, it's gone. I'm moving on. I'm never to return. There's never going to be reconciliation. God has given me a new life here in Egypt. He's blessed me in this new life, and, and that stuff's in the past. I'm moving on. And that pain and that hurt... It's in the past. And now here they are. And they're bowing down before him. What must have been going through his mind? Probably a lot of things. But we're given clues from the text as to what might have been going through his mind. In verse 7, we're told that Joseph treated them like strangers and spoke roughly, spoke harshly to them. Why did he do that? Why did he speak harshly to them? Why do you think that is? Commentators are actually pretty split on what was going on in Joseph's heart, what was motivating him speaking harshly to his brothers and treating them like strangers. Some say that he's just being vindictive. He's trying to get even, that he's being motivated by uh, revenge. And while he probably did battle with some of those feelings because he's human, I don't think Joseph's being revengeful here. After all, it's, it's him It's Joseph who only puts him in jail for three days. He had spent years in jail, years, because of what they had done. He only sends them there for three days. It's Joseph who changes their test first from all of you are going to have to stay and only one can go back to three days later, one of you can stay and the rest of you can go back and bring bring grain. He's the one who refunds their money. He's the one who puts their money back in their sacks and essentially doesn't charge them for all of the grain that they take back to Canaan and to their family. That doesn't sound like someone who's out for revenge just trying to exact their pound of flesh. It actually sounds more merciful and kind and patient. So why does he speak harshly to them then? Why does he accuse them for being spies when he knows that they're not? And we get another clue in verse 9. Verse 9 says that Joseph remembered his dreams that he dreamed about his brothers. And then he accused them of being spies. He remembered his dreams. The dreams, as you recall, were a prophecy from God that Joseph's brothers and mother and father would one day bow down before him and he would be, be by God's providence, risen in authority over them. And so now Joseph sees his brothers bowing down before him and he thinks... Could this be it? Could this be what this is all about? Is this why God allowed my brothers to throw me in a pit and betray me and then sell me to slay? Is this, is this it? Is this how it's all going to come together? The, 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 the pieces of the puzzle are beginning to come together in Joseph's mind. But he almost, also must have thought... but. But they're not all here. It's not complete yet. There's, there's another one at home. There's, there's Benjamin. If, if this is God's prophecy, it's got it's to complete everything. And so I've got to somehow coax Benjamin to come to Egypt as well. Bottom line is we don't know what's going on in Joseph's mind because we're not told. Whether it was a vindictive spirit or revenge or, or just a desire to see his younger brother Benjamin. 
or out of a desire to see God's prophecy to him come true. No matter what was going on in Joseph's heart and mind, God was at work using Joseph's rough speak, his harsh words, and Joseph's test that he gives him to accomplish his perfect plan. See, just as God brought the famine to play in order to bring the brothers to Egypt, so now God is using Joseph's harsh words in order to send them back to Egypt to bring Benjamin home. And so the brothers plead their innocence and they give away a little bit more information about their family than they probably re- realized that they were. They said there's actually 12 of us, not 10. The youngest is at home with our father and one is no more, referring to Joseph, whom they presume to be dead. But Joseph reasserts his accusation that they are spies and he, and he issues this test. You need to go and get the youngest one and bring him back here to prove that you're honest men. And all of you will stay here and only one will go back. And then he throws him in jail for three days. On the third day, he changes the test and he says, listen, actually only one of you needs to stay. The rest of you will go and I'll give you bread. And he does so. And at this point, this is really the climax of chapter 42. At this point, when this happens, when they they find themselves in this predicament, the brothers' consciences are pricked. And somehow, by God's providence, they remember what they had done to Joseph. And and they say, we're we're guilty of that. Look, Look at verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we didn't listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. They recognize their current predicament as a display of God's wrath. And it's as if they ask themselves, God, what did we do to deserve this? What, what, what sin did we commit, Lord? What, when, when did we ever do anything wrong? And then it's as if in the middle of them asking, they remember, oh, it's about Joseph. That's what this is about. And their consciences are pricked. This is because of what we did to Joseph. We, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us for mercy and we didn't listen to him. That's why this distress right now is upon us. And then Reuben confirms that in the next verse, verse 22. Reuben answered this, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? And we re- recall how Reuben attempted to save him. Reuben says, but you didn't listen to me. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. There's an important lesson here, church, about how our loving Father disciplines us because that's what's going on here. That's what God is doing in the life of the brothers. He's disciplining them. He revealed his wrath, his anger at their sin, and the revealing of his anger in this this instance was for the purpose of bringing them to repentance. His wrath was revealed in this dire situation that they found themselves in. At the mercy of the second most powerful person in the most powerful empire in the world at this point. And this guy thought they were spies. That's a dangerous predicament. And now he had bound up one of their brothers and was keeping him. And they had to go back to Canaan and get their only remaining brother and bring him back to this guy. And they had to explain to their father that yet another one of his sons is missing. And they knew that this was God's wrath against them for what they had done to Joseph. Somehow God used these circumstances to speak to them through their consciences that what they had done to Joseph 20 years earlier was sin, was wicked. And God was doing this so that they would repent. Friends, God does this with us as well. He does this in our lives as well. He sometimes reveals his anger, his wrath, not all of it, by God's mercy, not all of it, just a sliver of it. A bit of chastisement, a bit of discipline in our lives that we might see the wickedness in our heart in order to lead us to repentance. As parents... 
We discipline our children because we love them and we want them to learn and do right and not wrong. And our Father loves us and He disciplines us because He loves us. And He's leading us to repentance that we might change. The writer of Hebrews, quoting from Psalm 94, says, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. And Hebrews Hebrews 12 goes on to talk about how the one that, that doesn't have discipline in his life is like an illegitimate child who doesn't have a loving father to discipline them. But we do have a loving father. And he loves us sometimes through that discipline. So that that discipline, as the writer of Hebrews concludes in Hebrews 12, might yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness when we have been trained by that discipline. But we need to be careful here, and this is a caution here in, in looking at suffering this way, because the Lord's loving discipline sometimes feels very similar to the suffering and injustice that Joseph had experienced. For example, why did Joseph's brothers immediate, immediately conclude that this was a result of what they had done to Joseph? It was a result of something that they had done wrong. And yet Joseph didn't conclude that when he experienced suffering and injustice, right? Well, what's the difference there? So a lot of times there can be confusion around this. Is the, is the suffering that I'm experiencing simply a result of God's sovereign plan in the world? And, and, and I'm living in a fallen world and he's working out his plans like we've been talking about with Joseph all along. Is, is this suffering a result of that? Or have I sinned? And is it a result of him disciplining me and leading me to repentance? How do we know the difference? Well, I think the answer is we ask the Lord. We come to him and we ask him, Lord, are you bringing discipline in my life through this suffering? Is, is that what you're doing? Have I sinned against you? Have I offended you in some way? Have I done something that isn't pleasing to you, that doesn't glorify you? Show me, Lord. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, to, to shine the light of conviction on unconfessed sin, that we might confess it and repent of it, agree with God about it, that it is there and it is wrong and it is not right, and to repent of it, to turn away from it. And so humbly ask the Lord to change us and, and to give us the fruit of righteousness that the writer of Hebrews talks about that is only ours in Christ. That's what's happening here to Joseph's brothers. God's reveal, he reveals his wrath by means of their suffering at the hands of Joseph. And the reality of God's wrath being on them makes them remember their evil wickedness against their brother 20 years earlier. So friend, if you're experiencing suffering this morning, when you experience suffering, that doesn't necessarily mean that God is disciplining you. Let us not go back to the friends of Job. That's what the friends of Job said, that every time you experience suffering, it's because God is, is disciplining you and he's judging you because of your sin. That is not the case. It does not necessarily mean that, but it might mean that. And so ask him, Lord, have I done something to offend you? Lord, are you disciplining me? Is that what this is? Have I, have I sinned in some way? Do I need to get something right with you? Show me my sin that I might confess it before you and turn away from it in faith, trusting in Jesus both to save me from sin's penalty and to sanctify me from sin's power. That's what's happening in verses 21 through 22. The brothers are convicted by God of their sin, and they're speaking about it. And Joseph overhears them. They don't know that he hears them because there's an interpreter there. They have no clue that he understands Hebrew, but he does. He remembers his Hebrew from 20 years earlier. And he hears what they're saying. And he hears their humble repentance. And it's just too much for him. And we have that tender scene in verses 23 and 24 where he just has to step away to compose himself and to collect himself. And he steps away and he weeps. And why does Joseph weep? I think he weeps because he had written them off. He didn't want anything to do with them. He remembered the pain. He remembered the hurt. He, they sold him to slave trade. They threw him in a pit to die. 
And his conclusion is those guys will never change. I don't want anything to do with them. He had written them off. There will never be reconciliation between myself and my family and certainly not between myself and my brothers ever because of what they did. And now here they are, bowing before him, showing signs of true repentance that God is working on their hearts. And he's like, maybe God can bring reconciliation between us. But God had bigger plans than just a personal reconciliation in this family. So Joseph has Simeon bound. He takes him away, sends the brothers home, fills their bags with grain, and he replaces the money back in their sacks, and they set out for Canaan to bring Benjamin back. So the third and final section is verses 26 through 38, where now we see Joseph's brothers arriving back in Canaan and the interchange that they have with their father Jacob. Then they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed, and as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brother, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies in the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We've never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, said this, to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way, but bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall, not, you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on, that, on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So they're leaving Egypt, and one of them looks into the sack when he gives his, his beast of burden something to eat, and lo and behold, there's the money. And we're told that they tremble with fear, and they say, what is this that God has done to us? Again, they're recognizing God's discipline for their sin with Joseph 20 years ago. So they get back to Canaan, they report to Jacob what happened to them when they were in Egypt, that the Egyptians are holding Simeon and they're not going to let Simeon go until they come back with Benjamin, the youngest, Jacob's favorite. Then they find all the money, they, all of them find the money in the sack and, and we're told that they were very afraid. And what we need to understand here is that this fear for them is a good thing. This, this fear that they fear here is a it's a good thing because Joseph put the money back in their sacks as a test to test them to see if they are honest men. It's part of the test. Are they many men who are greedy, who are motivated by wealth, or are they men who are motivated by integrity and honesty? And it's this fear that they have. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen to us when they find out that we didn't give them the money? Somehow something happened and we're going to get blamed for that. What is going to happen? It is that fear that causes them, that motivates them to make sure that the money gets brought back with them when they go back to Egypt, as we'll see in the next chapter. And God does the same in our lives. The fear of God, often articulated in Scripture as warnings from Scripture that, that, that we ought to do this and do that or not do this and not do that, those warnings in Scripture bring to us or motivate us to biblical obedience and fidelity. This chapter of the story closes with Jacob's bereavement. You've bereaved me of Joseph. He is gone. Now Simeon's gone. Now you want to take Benjamin too? 
And Reuben, acting like the Old Testament version of Peter, the, the impetuous Peter, says, kill my two sons if, I, if he doesn't come back. I'll take him. I'll take care of this. But Jacob's like, never. I'll never let Benjamin go. But we'll see how that works out in chapter 43. As we close, I want us to look at those four levels that God is working on. He's working on these four planes here. He's working on a personal level. God is using famine here and Joseph's rise to power in Egypt to bring about reconciliation between estranged brothers. But he's doing more than that. He's also working on this family. He's causing fulfillment of Joseph's dream that God would one day bring his entire family to him and they would bow before him as he has risen in authority over them. But more than that is going on here. God is also using famine and Joseph's rise to power in Egypt to fulfill his promise to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham. The promise that he made to Abraham that from your seed I am going to build a great nation. And then he's also doing more than that because God's also using famine and Joseph's rise to power in Egypt to redeem a people unto himself. That, that, that the nation that co would come from Abraham would one day be a blessing to all the nations, all the peoples of the earth. And so let us learn again those two things that we started with. Number one, we must sit back and marvel at the sovereignty of God in all of this. God is always at work. Even in suffering, even in injustice, he is always at work bringing about his perfect plan and purposes. But secondly... I think we just need to see the lengths to which God went to redeem sinners like us back to him. See, none of this was an end in and of itself. None of it. All of it was a means to an end. Even the eventual arrival of Benjamin in Egypt before Joseph, that wasn't an end. That was a means. Even later on in the story, when the entire family, all of Jacob's family, all of Israel's family comes to Egypt, that was not an end. That too was a means to an end. Because God is going to use their time in Egypt to build a nation. And 400 years later, that's exactly what happens. That, that no longer are they, are they this ragtag uh, family moving here and there. They are a, a nation, two and a half million people strong. They come out of Egypt, a nation. But that too is not an end. That too is a means. Because God's promise to Abraham was more than just making them into a nation. But he said, through you, Abraham, through this nation that will come from you, through your seed, you will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed. God plans to bless all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the earth through the nation of Israel because it's from this people, this nation that will come out of Egypt 400 years later that God will bring his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the King, the, the, the God-man, the seed of the woman as promised from Genesis chapter 3 that will one day crush the head of the serpent, defeating sin and death forever for all those who come to him in faith. And repentance. So this is what God is doing. This, this is his plan here. To redeem sinners like you and I. But can I venture to say that, that we can even go further than that. Because that too is just a means. Even our redemption, our salvation is not the end. It is a means to an end. And that end, the end of all things that God does is to bring glory to himself. So what is he doing in your life? He's working to glorify himself. That's what he's doing. And sometimes the meandering path of his means for doing so seems more random and chaotic than orderly. And it seems to happen more by happenstance and, and coincidence than providence and purposefulness. But never lose sight, Christian, that he is never not in control. And he is working in your life to bring about his perfect plans 
for your good and his glory. Let's pray. Father, all of us in this room and within the hearing of my voice need to hear this because all of us will be faced with times of suffering and injustice. In fact, our our Savior promised us that we will be persecuted. But Lord, there are some that are experiencing suffering now. God, would you take the truth from the life of Joseph and drive it deep into their heart and mind so that they might have that sweet comfort that comes only from knowing that they have a loving father who's still at the wheel and hasn't given up control and is working out his perfect plan for all of eternity and that this, even this, somehow, even though we don't understand it, is part of it. It's a thread in the fabric that God is weaving for his eternal majesty and glory. And God, may that be the bomb that brings comfort to our brothers and sisters in the midst of suffering now and when we all face suffering at some point. But God, we also lift up those who may be among us in this room or in our families and our spheres of influence that don't have that hope because they don't have a relationship with you. They still stand under the weight and guilt of their sin. And Father, may the severe mercy, may the severe mercy of the reality of eternal judgment lead them to the cross to see that salvation and hope can only be found through Jesus Christ. Give them faith to trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross as their only hope to be reconciled to you so that the hope that we have of an eternity with you might be their hope as well. Father, thank you so much for this book. Thank you for the truth that you've given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.